This is Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm Abigail Snyder, and today I'm joined by Fred Branfon, author of the soon-to-be-released book, Intimate Strangers, a history of Jews and Catholics in the city of Rome. Fred has a Ph.D. in archaeology from the University of Pennsylvania, and he was a professor of history of religions and Near Eastern archaeology. He also has published numerous articles on Roman and Italian Jewish history. Additionally, Fred has a law degree from UCLA and presently practices law in California. Today, I'm excited to talk with Fred about his upcoming book, Intimate Strangers, which is set to be released on May 1st. Fred, thanks for joining me here on the station. Yes, Abigail, thank you for having me. It's really delightful. Before we get into Intimate Strangers, tell us a little bit about you, your background, and also why you were inspired to write this book. Well, I'm a very lucky man. I had a wonderful education, among other things, uh, and I you know, was able to get myself a PhD in the history of religion and archaeology at the University of Pennsylvania, which, uh, which I you know, studied with wonderful people. I taught for uh, 20 years, and I also was, uh, you know, helped direct excavations in Israel. You know, I was extremely lucky in that regard. And then it was suggested to me that I go to Rome because uh, I'd been to Rome maybe when I was a child, and not maybe, but I, I was. But I didn't remember too much about it. But I was told, oh, this city's made for you archaeology and the food and stuff like that. So I went, and of course, I fell in love with Rome. It's difficult not to fall in love with Rome. It's a beautiful city, people are wonderful, and it's an open air museum. Uh, really, of ancient artifacts and also uh, Jewish artifacts. And it's an open-air museum of medieval artifacts and modern history. It's tr- it's just a terrific place. So I was there. Uh, I was pretty much of a tourist. And as I say in the beginning of my book, uh, I had a guide, uh, a very knowledgeable guide. She, she herself had a PhD uh, in art history, and she was taking... Uh, myself and uh, Shirley through the Vatican and on our way to the Sistine Chapel she pointed out a fireplace and she said uh, yeah yeah that's where my uh, grandparents uh, were kept uh, in shelter during World War II because she was Jewish and her grandparents were Jewish and they survived the Holocaust here in this corridor and uh, I looked, I couldn't believe what she was telling me, really. They slept on the floor right here. Yes. I had to find out as much as I could about that story. And in order to find out about the story, I went back a few years and then a few years more. And uh, then I went back to the year 139 BCE because that's where it started, when Jewish president presence started in Rome. That's how I did it. Well, your book is a history of Jews and Catholics in Rome, as the subtitle says. And it's interesting that you chose to pair these two groups together, because I wouldn't think of them as being necessarily connected, especially not in Rome. So take us back to the beginning of the relationship between Jews and Catholics in Rome. What do we need to know, and and what's the big picture overview? Well, of course, uh, if you go back to the beginning, I mean, the earliest uh, Christians who uh, were Catholics— uh, were uh, Jews, uh, so that uh, St. Peter, 
who um, may have been in Rome. Certainly, there seems to be a grave of his at the Vatican. He was certainly Jewish. Paul, who visited Rome, was certainly Jewish. So the connection between Jews and Catholics goes back to the very beginning of when Jews and Catholics were in Rome. Um, now, of course, there was uh, at that time and uh, in succeeding times a good deal of uh, adversity and sometimes animosity between the Jewish community and the Catholic community in Rome. The Jewish community was there first. Uh, they were there in 139 BCE, as I said. So they were there first. Um, but uh, as they grew up together there, uh, the uh, Catholic community was located right across the river and sometimes next door to the uh, major Jewish community. Now, the Jewish community was very small, maybe 3,000, maybe 5,000 uh, Jews in Rome in the early Middle Ages. Uh, Jews lived uh, in Trastevere, which is on the same side of the river as uh, the Vatican. Uh, in 1555, uh, Pope Paul IV uh, built a ghetto which he concentrated and demanded that all Jews live in one concentrated area on the other side of the river. Uh, uh, and he built that ghetto, but nevertheless, the ghetto is within sight of the Vatican. I mean, they're very, very close, and uh, they live very closely. The overarching theme of the book is that that sort of uh, propinquity, that is to say, that sort of uh, availability of persons neighbor to neighbor over the years, uh, allowed for both Jews and Catholics to speak of each other as if they were family. Um, they weren't family. Uh, Jews were not allowed to marry Catholics uh, by Jewish and Catholic tradition. Uh, and uh, the reverse is also true. Catholics were not allowed to marry Jews. But they spoke, nevertheless, they spoke of each other as if they were family uh, in strange uh, ways. Um, so, for instance, uh, when the ghetto was formed, uh, it was, of course, a segregation of all Jews in one area. They were separated from the rest of the city. And uh, Jews uh, made a joke about this. They thought at, the first, at first it was sort of funny, or at least they had a bitter sense of humor about it. And they said that it was a divorce, that the Pope was giving us a divorce, as if they were married, which they weren't, of course. But the words were uh, that the Pope has decided to give us a divorce, and the word in Hebrew for a divorce is a get, G-E-T. And so it was a play on the word of ghetto. And uh, this is just one example, but a significant example of how Jews and Catholics considered themselves on some level to be uh, to be family, despite biologically they were not. Uh, then, when the uh, when Catholics and Jews had the ability in the in the twentieth century to actually marry each other, they married each other in great numbers, and there was a tremendous amount of intermarriage. And then, during World War II, when Rome was occupied by the Nazis. And the chips were down. This Jewish Catholic family found a way of protecting Jews. Again, they were not a biological family, although some were. But they found a way of protecting Jews. Not all Catholics uh, did that. 
But uh, Rome at that point had about 8,000 Jews, and about 4,000 of them were saved by uh, Catholic uh, families and Catholic institutions. And uh, if the Jewish Catholic family over the years was dysfunctional at times, and it was, it was a dysfunctional family, by World War II, when the chips were down, uh, some and many uh, sh uh, showed that they could uh, relate to each other as a, as a good, healthy family. You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm Abigail Snyder, joined today by Fred Branfon, author of the upcoming book, Intimate Strangers, A History of Jews and Catholics in the City of Rome. Well, Fred, you've talked about how the Jews and Catholics were living alongside one another in Rome, but I'm wondering, did one side try to adamantly convert the other? Were there any significant successes with getting Jews to convert to Catholicism or vice versa? Yeah, well, of course, in the Jewish tradition, uh, uh, for conversion, and uh, certainly forcible conversion, but any sort of conversion, uh, is uh, is not practiced. It's not it's not something that is done. Jews don't try to convert other uh, members of other religions, but Catholics uh, Catholics do, and there was uh, uh, a good deal of attempts by the Catholic Church to convert Jews. Now. The first major attempt to, to do so was the establishment of the ghetto, where the Jews were locked in uh, to a walled portion of the city. They weren't allowed at, out at night, and they were only allowed by the Catholic Church to practice one form of business. They could be rag pickers. They could uh, deal in secondhand cloth and secondhand clothing. And this was segregation, and it was also oppression. And the purpose of it, uh, the stated purpose of it, was for Jews to convert to Catholicism. Well, uh, early on in the history of the ghetto, there were a, a, a significant number of Jews uh, who did convert. But in general, the ghetto was a failure in that regard, and they did not convert in great numbers. And the Jewish community uh, remained a, a constant within the walls of the ghetto. And then... After the Protestant Reformation uh, in the 1500s, uh, when it became when that became a serious challenge to the Roman Catholic Church, um, the Church turned to the Jewish community to try to get uh, converts, and then they tried to forcibly convert Jews. Now, the uh, doctrine of the Catholic Church was that you couldn't forcibly convert anyone; people had to come of their own free will. But there was a subsequent uh, doctrine of the church called pious lashes, which is pious whiplashes. And that was meant to uh, influence the Jewish community to convert. And this could sometimes involve kidnapping of children um, and uh, persons who were converts, Jewish converts, were able to literally donate members of their family, their children, their wives, through the church, and they would be captured and uh, uh, forced to convert. This was a very dark period in the history of Jewish-Catholic relations. Uh, it lasted for over a century, um, but it did it, it did exist, and there uh, uh, there were strong attempts to forcibly convert Jews. But again, the success was minimal. 
Fred, I was especially interested in your chapter in Intimate Strangers on Jews in Rome during World War II and Nazi occupation. Give us a summary of what life was like for both sides during those years, and also what was the Catholic response to Hitler and his hatred of the Jews? What happened was, of course, Hitler rose uh, to uh, power in Germany in 1933, and his uh, hatred of the Jews and his designs to eventually uh, exterminate them uh, became known you know, to, uh, to most observers during the 1930s. Uh, during that time, uh, the, uh, the Catholic Church was to some degree silent. Now, it must be said that uh, Pope Pius XI uh, did speak out, and he said that Catholic anti-Semitism was impossible, that he himself was a Semite, uh, and uh, he made a, a number of strong statements which resulted in uh, his words being censored and uh, taken off the newsstand out of newspapers or whatever in uh, Nazi Germany. Once the war began uh, and the extermination of the Jews really began in earnest, he was no longer the Pope because he had died. Uh, his successor, Pope Pius XII, was a much more cautious pope, uh, maybe cautious to a fault, and uh, he had, of course, a great deal of difficulty uh, in his you know, his own political position. He uh, found himself in the middle of the 20th century, toe-to-toe and face-to-face with Hitler and with Stalin, to some degree, uh, without an army. And he had to, if he had, if he wanted to do anything, uh, it was extremely difficult for him. I'll get back to that in a second. Individual Catholics, however, uh, who were not speaking for the church in general or universally, uh, to a great extent, especially in Italy, uh, tried to protect the Jews. Uh, less, less so in places like Poland, which was also a heavily Catholic country, although many Polish uh, people did try to protect the Jews and uh, and did so. In Italy, uh, the Jewish population was much, much smaller. And in Italy, uh, the Catholic Church was able to aid during World War II in, uh, the, in securing refuges for, uh, for Jewish families to a very large extent. Uh, in Rome, as it turns out, as I just said, uh, let's say there were 8,000 Jews. Uh, of those, 4,000 Jews were saved by uh, being placed in convents, being placed in uh, churches, monasteries, and as I said, in the, in the Vatican itself. Uh, this, was, uh, this put all these institutions at great risk. Uh, Hitler and the Pope had an agreement that uh, Nazi forces would not enter a convent or a monastery or a church, and therefore Jews were supposed to be uh, safe in those institutions. Uh, the Nazis sometimes did not adhere to that agreement. That's number one. But nevertheless, uh, a great many Jews were, uh, were, were saved. They were saved uh, not necessarily by any orders from the Pope himself, 
these were individual acts for the most part. Uh, mother superiors, um, priests, uh, bishops who went out of their way to save Jews and also Catholic individuals who were not who were members of the church, but they were not professional church professionals. Uh, the result was that the community of Jews in Rome, which had existed for 2,000 years, persisted up until today without uh, the intervention of the Catholic individuals from churches to private homes. Um, the uh, Nazis would have exterminated the entire Jewish community of Rome. So it's a significant history, and that's one of the reasons why I wrote it. You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm Abigail Snyder, joined today by Fred Branfon, author of the upcoming book, Intimate Strangers. In Intimate Strangers, you begin with an examination of the Arch of Titus, and also kind of end there, naming the final chapter of the book, The Arch of Titus, Redux. So the Arch of Titus seems to be an important marker in your telling of this history. What is the Arch of Titus in Rome, and what is its significance to the story of Jews and Catholics in the city? Well, the Arch of Titus in Rome uh, is actually the largest, I, I believe it's the largest war memorial in Italy. Of course, it was, it was erected in around 80 uh, CE uh, to honor Titus, who at that point, upon his death, had been the emperor of Rome, and who had, when he was a general, uh, conquered Jerusalem and destroyed the uh, Jewish temple in Jerusalem and taken as spoils of war uh, the temple treasures, uh, including the temple menorah, from Jerusalem to Rome. This was his greatest triumph, and when his brother, Diocletian, uh, put together an arch to honor him, uh, near, the arch is near the uh, Roman Forum, when he put together an arch to honor him, he had uh, depictions carved into the uh, carved into the arch of the destruction of Jerusalem and <clears throat> the spoils of war being carried through the streets of Rome. And also, of course, the arch depicted his deification because according to uh, Roman tradition, certain emperors became gods upon their death. Uh, not all, but certain ones. And Diocletian thought that his brother became a god upon his death, and so he erected this arch. Well, at a certain point, of course, Rome became uh, a Catholic city. And uh, the question was, why preserve all these uh, ancient Roman and uh, pagan ar artifacts and architecture. But the Arch of Titus was preserved. And it was preserved because for Catholics at the time, it was uh, the fulfillment of a prophecy that Jesus makes in the New Testament that Jerusalem would be destroyed and that Jesus would himself be uh, the new temple uh, and the, uh, the and Catholics in Rome and the Catholic Church believed that the arch uh, was no longer commemorating a Roman emperor, emperor. It was commemorating the supersession of Catholicism over Judaism, uh, which occurred when the temple was destroyed and Christianity 
uh, became a world religion. Uh, in the uh, and, it, and that was, that was how it was viewed for most of the two thousand years from you know the time it was erected up until the twentieth century. Uh, in the nineteenth century, one of the popes, Pope Pius X, had the arch restored. It was in ruins, and he restored it. And uh, there's a plaque on the side of the arch today, which commemorates that restoration. However, uh, in 1947, the state of Israel was established through the United Nations. And when the state of Israel was established through the United Nations, uh, the Jewish community of Rome spontaneously went to the arch and they celebrated the uh, establishment of the state of Israel at the arch and they also spontaneously marched backwards through the arch to undo the taking of Jewish slaves to Rome and the capturing of Jewish artifacts to Rome, to undo it and celebrate the new establishment of the state of Israel. And the arch then, and up until today, uh, ironically, is no longer an arch which glorifies Titus. And it's really no longer an arch that glorifies the Catholic Church. It's an arch that commemorates the perseverance of the Jewish people. And in fact, uh, some years ago, the mayor of Rome, who was not Jewish, uh, went to the arch to speak, and he said that. He said, now this arch is, uh, is a, a monument to the Jewish people. So that arch went through a series of permutations, and I think it's uh, quite a story. You're listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm Abigail Snyder, joined today by Fred Branfon, author of the upcoming book, Intimate Strangers, A History of Jews and Catholics in the City of Rome. Fred, the last sentence of your book says this, A responsible and evolving understanding of the past is necessary for Catholics and Jews in Rome, still intimate strangers to live and change together in the eternal city. That term, intimate strangers, which is also the title of the book, seems a bit paradoxical. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yes, I can. You know, um, the way I understand it is that uh, Jews and Catholics uh, consider themselves, of course, to be strangers in one way or another. They practice different religions. They have different customs. They eat different foods. They weren't allowed to marry for almost 2,000 years. Uh, and, they were, and there was a great deal of segregation of the Jewish community in the ghetto. Uh, but over against that is the strange and, yes, paradoxical uh, phenomenon that they have lived together for 2,000 years. And the Jews of Rome have been there uh, continuously for as I say, over 2,000 years. And uh, unlike other uh, Jewish communities in Europe, they were uh, never uh, expelled. They were never exterminated. And so they lived next door to each other for 2,000 years in what others have called a strange intimacy. And I just turned it around and called it intimate strangers. And... um, 
and I, I named the book that uh, not only because I think it's an accurate description of uh, their relationship, but also because in general, um, a historical understanding is not easy. You can't, uh, for me at least, you can't just say, well, they were, uh, you know, they were separate, they didn't like each other, they argued or whatever it is. No, there was something else going on at the same time. History is complicated. People are complicated. And I wanted the, the, the title to be paradoxical and to express in a few, as few words as possible, uh, too, uh, the complex relationship that existed between them, but also that a reader can understand that if he, were to, he or she were to go out and look at any historical situation, uh, it would not be easy to understand it, but it would, it would take an understanding of great complexity. For people interested in picking up a copy of Intimate Strangers, when will it be available and how can they do so? Intimate Strangers is now available on uh, Amazon, and it's available also on Barnes & Noble, that is to say, online. And you can get it, uh, get it there. I was told that the books would, if, you, if let's say you bought it today, uh, you'd get it on May 1st or the first week in May. But you wouldn't have to wait too long if you ordered it in the next uh, next weeks to, to have it be de- delivered to you. I do have some hope that if there are still bookstores out there, I think there might be, uh, uh, it might appear in some of those bookstores. I know that even if it's not, it is available, electro- and it's available electronically also. You can get a Kindle edition of the book. You can just put it on your Kindle or on your uh, book reader, e-reader or computer, but you can also get a hardcover copy. Fred, thanks so much for joining me here on the station to discuss Intimate Strangers and give us an inside look at what we can learn from the book. We wish you the best of luck with the book's release in just a few weeks. Thank you very, very much for having me. This was fun. Thanks for listening to Radio Free Hillsdale 101.7 FM. I'm Abigail Snyder, joined today by author Fred Branfon. We hope you've enjoyed this interview and that you'll tune in again for more special content.